Welcome to the first true crime episode of the Lawyer's Hip Hop Happy Hour, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Wu-Tang Clan said it best, cash rules everything around me. Cash, and lots of it, are a central theme in this story that I'm going to tell you. My soon-to-be client Oscar Martinez, his wife Victoria, and her twin brother Victor all traveled from their home in southern New Jersey to a used car dealership right across the bridge from New York City. The plan was to buy two cars that day. Victor had made all the arrangements. He had set it all up in advance. It was supposed to be quick and easy. They were paying for the cars in cash, and the plan was for Oscar and Victor to drive the two new cars while Victoria would follow. As soon as they pulled into the lot, they saw the two cars parked at the front gate, a Honda Civic and a Mitsubishi Eclipse. They got out of their car and started walking towards the dealership when all of a sudden they were surrounded on all sides by men and women wearing FBI and DEA jackets. Their guns were drawn. They were screaming at everybody to get down on the ground with their hands out. Within seconds, all three were in handcuffs sitting in the back of three different police cars. Oscar later told me it was like something out of a movie. Police officers and federal agents everywhere, lights flashing, lots of confusion. He didn't know what to think. He also told me that he watched the agents make a beeline to his car and to the two new cars that they were going to buy. They were searching through the cars, and he told me that he heard the agents yelling back and forth at each other that there wasn't anything in the cars and that they all seemed upset. When he told me that, I thought about one of my favorite movies, The Usual Suspects. There's a great scene in the movie where one of the characters realizes that there is no treasure anywhere on a boat that he and others had just risked their lives to board. The line from the movie was also sampled in the song Assassination Day by Ghostface Killer. Oscar grew up in Miami, Florida. He was an athlete in high school and college, which is how he met Victor, who at one time was his teammate. He eventually met Victor's sister, Victoria, who became his future wife. His father's family were wealthy Colombian landowners, and his mother was the epitome of the American dream, a black woman from Colombia who created her own wealth in the U.S. by opening a successful chain of beauty supply stores in South Florida. Victor and Victoria's parents were well-respected members of the Cuban community in Miami. They owned a famous club and restaurant in Little Havana. Their dad was a part-time musician, and they grew up hosting celebrities in their home like Celia Cruz, Cuban royalty, who we all know for her famous song, Guantanamera, and of course, her later collaboration with Wyclef Jean of the Fugees. This is now. Welcome to the carnival. Allow me to introduce you to the principal cast of characters of A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. All of the events and the people in the story are real. Their names and certain other details have been changed to protect their identity and to preserve attorney-client privilege. 
First up is Oscar. Oscar was my client. When we first met, he was in his early 20s, recently graduated from college, and married to his college sweetheart. Oscar grew up in Miami, but both of his parents were from Columbia. Oscar had moved to New Jersey after college to open a Colombian restaurant with his wife and brother-in-law. Carmen is Oscar's mother. Carmen is Afro-Latina. She's from Colombia's Caribbean coast. She met Oscar's father in Bogota while he was a college student and she was working as a waitress. The two married pretty quickly after meeting one another and eventually moved to Miami to live with her husband's American family shortly before Oscar was born. Carmen grew up very poor in Colombia, but while in Miami, she earned a college degree and opened a successful chain of beauty supply stores in South Florida. Juan is Oscar's father. Juan is from a wealthy land-owning family in Colombia. Juan's family was not too happy with him marrying Carmen, primarily because of her race and status in society, which is the reason Juan and Carmen left Colombia for a time to live with his American family in South Florida. Once Oscar was born, however, everyone reconciled and the pair began to split their time between Colombia and the United States. Today, Juan primarily lives in Colombia, managing the family assets, and Carmen splits her time between her businesses in Miami and Colombia. Oscar was raised in Miami and attended school there, graduating high school and eventually going to college in South Florida. He would, however, spend summers in Colombia with his father's family. Victoria is Oscar's wife. Victoria is Cuban-American. Her family left Cuba back when Castro came to power and settled in Miami. Her family owns a restaurant in Little Havana, where she grew up working all her life. She went to college and met Oscar. They dated all throughout and got married as soon as they graduated. Victor is Victoria's twin brother. Like his sister, he too grew up in the restaurant business. And after graduation from college, all three, Oscar, Victor, and Victoria, moved to New Jersey to open a Colombian slash Cuban restaurant. Wallace is a friend of Oscar's family. Wallace is a middle-aged African-American man originally from Florida but living in New Jersey for many years. He's a friend of Oscar's father. He owns restaurants in New Jersey and Philadelphia and was supposed to help Oscar and his wife establish their restaurant in the Jersey Philadelphia area. Alejandro, also known as Alex, is a client of mine who introduced me to Oscar. Alex is from the Bronx in New York City. Now that you've met everyone, let's get started. Oscar, Victor, and Victoria were all charged with being participants in a federal drug conspiracy. None of them had ever been arrested before. How in the world did they end up being charged in a federal drug case? Each was charged with conspiracy to distribute five kilograms or more of cocaine, which carries a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years and a maximum sentence of life, which means that if any of them were convicted, the sentence by law could be no less than 10 years. Needless to say, this was the scariest moment in all of their lives. That same afternoon, Oscar was brought before a federal judge in New Jersey for what's called an initial appearance. An initial appearance is a type of court proceeding that usually occurs within 24 hours of someone being arrested. The arrested person is brought to court by law enforcement 
and a judge informs that person what crimes they're charged with and what the maximum penalties are. Another type of court proceeding is called a detention hearing, where a judge decides whether the person should remain incarcerated or be released pending trial. My clients often refer to this hearing as the one where the judge decides whether you are going to fight the case from the street or behind bars. Unfortunately for Oscar, Victor, and Victoria, after spending three days in the Essex County Jail in Newark, New Jersey, waiting for the detention hearing, the judge decided that the three should remain locked up pending trial. In other words, they were stuck. Now, there's much more to this story that I haven't told you yet, such as why they were charged with distributing cocaine in the first place when they were just trying to buy a couple of used cars. The FBI searched Oscar and Victoria's house, their car, no drugs found anywhere, much less cocaine. The FBI also searched the cars that the group was going to purchase. Those cars with those hidden compartments, same results. Nothing illegal, no drugs. So why were they being charged in a drug conspiracy? And why cocaine and not some other drug? Well, before I tell you that, we need to go back to the beginning. Just like Nas said in his song, Rewind. Listen up, gangsters and honeys, with your hair done. Pull up a chair, honey, and put it in the air, son. Dog, whatever they call you, God, just listen. I spit a story backwards, it starts at the ending. The bullet goes back in the gun. The bullet holes closing his chest of a nigga. Now he back to square one, screaming shit. About a year before Oscar was arrested, a task force of federal and local law enforcement in New York and New Jersey were working a massive money laundering investigation focused on certain businesses in and around Chinatown in New York City. The case began the way a lot of other cases begin, with an arrest and a tip. You see, before this money laundering case began, New Jersey State Police narcotics detectives arrested an individual, let's call him Mr. X, trying to sell 50 kilograms of cocaine to an undercover detective. Mr. X was a convicted felon and was facing years of prison time. So he did what lots of other people in his position do. He started talking telling police about any criminal activity that he knew about with the hope he could avoid a long bit in jail himself. I learned about Mr. X after I became Oscar's lawyer. As his attorney, I was entitled to the discovery in the case, the warrants, the reports, and the other documents that laid out the entire investigation. I learned how the case turned from an undercover drug buy to a full-blown money laundering investigation. The documents also told the story about the information that Mr. X provided to the police. According to these documents, Mr. X alerted police to the existence of certain businesses in Chinatown that helped launder money for their drug dealer clients. Now, before I tell you about the ins and outs of this Chinatown operation, let's talk about the basics of money laundering. The simplest way for me to explain it is that it's the process of taking dirty money, money from an illegal source, such as drugs, and making it appear as if it came from a legitimate source, such as a garbage hauling company. Think about Tony Soprano. The money laundering operation receives the dirty money, washes it, makes it clean, and then returns it to the owner, minus a fee for their service. Money is washed in a variety of different ways some very complicated, some very basic. The drug business is a cash business. And if you are at the top of the food chain, you are going to have lots of cash and nowhere to keep it. 
there are only so many cars and clothes you can buy. And when you start to make larger purchases with your cash, such as homes and other things, you may attract the attention of unwanted guests, such as the IRS. Drug dealers always need a way to make their money seem legitimate. Mr. X was a middleman, low-level management. He bought drugs wholesale and then sold those drugs to street-level dealers for a profit. He had people above him, whom he worked for, and those people had a direct cartel connection. So Mr. X, by design, doesn't know everything. He doesn't know who's supplying his bosses the drugs, but what he does know was that his bosses used a money laundering service to help clean their money. While he didn't know all of the particulars about the operation, here's what he told police about what he did know. If Mr. X's bosses had money they were looking to clean, they would send him to a business in Chinatown, a grocery store, a restaurant. It'd always be a different location every time. He would ask for the manager and give them a code word to let them know why he was there. The code word would always be different, such as, do you have any tomatoes? Do you have a banana? Whatever the case may be. That person would then give him a $1 bill and a prepaid cell phone. He would leave the business and wait for a phone call. Sometime later that day, he would receive a call from an unknown number. The caller would ask for the serial number of the dollar bill. Once the caller confirmed the serial number, the caller would give Mr. X an address, time, and location. Mr. X then provided these details to his bosses, who in turn would give him a duffel bag with lots of cash, anywhere from two hundred dollars to $800,000. Mr. X would take that money to the prearranged location, hand it over to another person who, before doing so, would again ask him the serial number of the dollar bill that he had been given before accepting the money. This person would then give Mr. X another dollar bill that Mr. X would bring to his bosses. Now, that dollar bill would serve as an insurance policy if anything ever happened to the money. When I first looked at the documents in the case, I noticed that there was a missing piece to the puzzle. The FBI didn't know how exactly the money was being cleaned. In one of the warrants that I read, one of the agents suspected that the money was being put through a series of complex financial transactions before being returned to the owner. But they didn't get, have any specifics, and neither did Mr. X. He would return to his bosses and give them the dollar bill, and would receive 1% of however much money was in the bag. So if the bag contained $200,000, his fee would be $2,000. But he did not know what happened to the money after he delivered it. His involvement ceased there. Around the time Oscar was arrested, I represented another client in federal court in New Jersey. My client's name in that case was Alejandro, Alex for short. Alex was a great guy. He and I got along very well, one of my all-time favorite clients. He was a Dominican guy from the Bronx that was arrested in New Jersey driving a Suburban filled with kilograms of heroin. Federal agents watched him pick up these drugs in Florida, followed him up I-95, and had state troopers stop him once he entered New Jersey. Alex was a 9-to-5 guy. He worked as a mechanic at a high-end car dealership, had a wife, three kids, but developed a serious heroin addiction an addiction that eventually overtook and ruined his life. His wife left him, he lost his job, and he eventually ran out of money to support his habit. He became so indebted to his dealers 
that when he couldn't afford to pay back drugs he had been fronted, he was given the opportunity to work off his debt. Alex agreed to drive a Suburban loaded up with multiple kilograms of heroin from Florida to New York. He flew down to Florida to pick up the truck and headed back up north. What no one knew at the time, however, was that the crew was under federal investigation. But Alex had no prior criminal record, and I was able to negotiate a very fair outcome for his case. One of the last days I went to visit him in the jail in New Jersey, he told me about his new cell buddy, Oscar, or as he put it, the rich kid from Miami that was looking for a new lawyer. He told me that he highly recommended me to Oscar and that Oscar's family should be giving me a call in the next few days. And sure enough, about a week later, my phone rang. The first time I talked to Carmen, she told me she was in Bogota, Colombia, but she could travel to D.C. in the next couple of days to meet me in person in my office. She explained that her son was in jail in New Jersey, that I came highly recommended, and the family wanted to hire me as soon as possible. Two days later, she showed up in my office, impeccably dressed, a beautiful woman with golden brown skin, curly hair, with a small gray streak across the top. She was very down to earth. She explained to me that she didn't know much about the case, other than her son was charged in a drug conspiracy. She told me that her son was a newlywed, that he, his wife, and her twin brother had recently moved from Florida to New Jersey to open up a new restaurant. His wife's family was in the restaurant business, and Oscar had always had an interest in owning his own restaurant. She was an open book. That first day, we must have talked for at least an hour in my office. She gave me the backstory of her and her entire family, that Oscar was her only child, that she herself grew up very poor in Colombia, but married a man from a very wealthy family, a family who wanted nothing to do with her because of her race. You see, she was black, and Oscar's father is not. She also made sure to tell me that she had made her own money in this country. She had become a U.S. citizen, owned her own business, and she split her time between Florida and Colombia. Oscar's father, Juan, lived primarily in Colombia, managing his family's assets. Carmen hired me that same day. She told me she would be in Miami and planned to travel to New Jersey next month to visit Oscar. Two weeks later, I was on the train to New Jersey myself, this time to visit my new client. By then, I had received some of the evidence in the case. So before Oscar and I met for the first time, I had read through the warrants and the reports, and I had a better understanding of why he and his family were arrested that day at the car dealership. One thing I've learned from my years of practice is to always try and get my client's version of events. Even in federal cases where the evidence is always substantial, there are some things the government gets wrong. I always want to build a rapport with my client to try and develop trust. Showing them that I'm there to listen, I care about their version, shows them also that I'm there to help. I want to work hand-in-hand with my clients to help defend their cases. Some clients are very open. Others may only give you a part of the story. But I always tell my clients, the more information you give me, the more I can help you. The first time I met Oscar, I remember thinking to myself that this guy looks like a baby. Really tall, skinny kid with curly hair like his mom, a baby face, and an innocent smile. Not the kind of person who you'd envision being locked up in a jail cell. Now, when Oscar and I first sat down and chat, I already had the official version of what happened, but I still wanted to hear directly from him. Oscar, just like his mother, was very open. He started by telling me about how he, his wife, and her brother had just moved from Florida to New Jersey with the hope of opening their own restaurant. 
his family friend, a man named Wallace, owned restaurants in New Jersey and Philadelphia and was supposed to be helping them get acclimated to the area. The group secured a space for the restaurant, were doing a build-out and getting things put in place, but there were numerous delays in construction. The group was bleeding money. Oscar said that he did not want to ask his parents for any more money, but if things kept up at that rate, he was going to run out of cash. One day, Victor approached him about a potential business opportunity. Victor met some guys from New York at a Dominican restaurant he went to in Brooklyn. These guys recruited him to count and deliver cash, lots of cash. Victor told Oscar they would receive 1% of however much cash they delivered. So if they delivered $500,000, they would receive $5,000 cash for their work, no questions asked. Oscar told me that at first he did not want any parts of this, that it all sounded too risky. He told Victor he was not interested. But about a month later, things with the restaurant were not looking any better and his money was getting lower and lower. So Oscar called Victor and asked whether he still had the connection with the Dominicans. Not only did Victor have the connection, he told Oscar that he'd already been working with him, had done three drops already, and made about $10,000. Victor's handler would always come to his apartment and bring him duffel bags filled with cash. Before leaving, the two would count the cash with the money counter, and the handler gave Victor a prepaid cell phone and a dollar bill. Victor's job was to give the serial number of the dollar bill to the person that would call the cell phone later that day. When Victor received a call, he would give the serial number of the dollar bill to the caller. The caller then confirmed the number and gave a time and location to meet. At the meeting, Victor handed over the duffel bag filled with cash to another unknown person. That person gave him yet another dollar bill that Victor had to give to his boss. Once Victor gave the new bill to his boss, he would be given the money for his work with no questions asked. Now, whenever Victor wanted to work, he would call the Dominican restaurant in Brooklyn and use a code word when placing an order. The code word was pollo con salsa, a dish that was not on the menu, but someone would always call him back from a different number and then arrange for a meetup either at his apartment or somewhere else later that day. Oscar told me that neither he nor Victor knew the source of the money and they did not want to know either. They both figured it was from something illegal, but did not want to know too much information in case something ever happened. Now, in the law, there's a term for when someone deliberately sticks their head in the sand when they don't want to know too much. It's called willful blindness. It means that you are purposefully blinding yourself to the truth. But unfortunately for many of my clients, it's not a valid defense. In other words, you can't just say, I didn't know what was going on. Your actions have to be objectively reasonable. And unfortunately for Victor and Oscar, accepting and giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash would not be considered objectively reasonable by most people. Oscar told me he was too proud to admit he was in over his head in the restaurant business. He was losing money fast. He wanted to prove to his parents that he could do it without their help. He also wanted to be able to continue to support his wife's lavish lifestyle, designer bags, the fancy clothes that he had been buying her since they were in college together. Now, when Oscar told me that, it reminded me of a verse in a Kanye West song, Runaway. Pusha T has an amazing line where he talks about the price we pay for material goods. But what he's really talking about is the ultimate price we pay or are willing to pay as human beings in our pursuit of material things. 
Part of it all. Pose like coaches wanna fly in your Freddy loafers. You can't blame them, they ain't never seen Versace sofas. Every bag, every blouse, every bracelet comes with a price tag, baby, face it. You should leave if you can't accept the basics. Plenty holes in a baller nigga matrix. Invisibly set, the Rolex is faceless. I'm just young, rich, and tasteless. P. Victor asked Oscar if he was interested in going with him the next time he did a drop. Oscar told me that he wanted to see how smoothly things ran before he got directly involved. So about a week later, Victor gave him a call. When Oscar arrived to his apartment, Victor was already ready. The money had been dropped off and counted. He had received the phone call, and he knew exactly where to go, a parking lot in northern New Jersey, right across the bridge from Manhattan. Victor threw the bag of money in Oscar's car, and the two were on their way with $200,000 in cash. Victor later told Oscar that he should have known better because this drop was happening in New Jersey and all the other drops had been in New York. Not to mention that his normal contact at the restaurant was not the person who delivered the money to his apartment this time. Turns out Victor's instincts were right. What he and Oscar didn't know at that time was that the exchange they were going to make was with an undercover federal agent. In all my years of practicing criminal law, I've learned that there is no such thing as the perfect crime. There's always that one thing that you're not thinking about that gets you into trouble. In Oscar's case, it was that he and Victor drove to the drop in Oscar's personal vehicle. Now law enforcement could run the license plate and learn everything about him, where he lived, what his name was, what he looked like, all from his driver's license. If he had used a rental car, his identity would have been a lot harder to figure out. When Victor and Oscar arrived to the parking lot, everything went according to plan. Oscar sat in the car while Victor met with the person he believed was the Chinatown connection. The whole thing took less than 30 seconds. Victor handed off the money, received the dollar bill, and the two were on their way back home within seconds. Victor later met with his normal connection and received $2,000 for his work. Later, after I became Oscar's lawyer, I read the report about this meeting. I learned that the agents were watching everything unfold from a hidden location. The feds had already arrested all the players from the Dominican side, but instead of shutting down the operation, they used confidential informants and undercover agents to keep everything going. But Oscar didn't do anything illegal this time. See, the law says that you can know a criminal, associate with a criminal, and even discuss criminal things without being guilty of a crime. Victor was the one who set everything up. He contacted all the parties and received money for his work. So even if the feds wanted to, there wasn't enough evidence to charge Oscar. The law says that a person can be present at the scene of a crime, and as long as they don't participate, they haven't done anything illegal. After that meeting, the investigating agents were given permission by a federal judge to place a GPS tracking device on Oscar's car. Now Oscar's movements could be tracked in real time. In the next couple of days, the agents noticed that Oscar's car traveled to a rest stop on I-95 in southern New Jersey, remained there for less than 20 minutes before heading back home. Naturally, they were curious. The agents traveled to the rest stop themselves, pulled the video from surveillance cameras from both inside the travel plaza and outside as well. In today's day and age, Big Brother is always watching. It reminds me of the Jill Scott song, Watching Me.
video from the rest stop gave the agents exactly what they needed to extend the investigation. It showed Oscar pulling his car into the rest stop's gas station parking lot, followed by Victor in a separate car. Two unknown persons then walked from the convenience store of the gas station and got into the back of Oscar's car. Agents were then able to track Oscar's car to the parking lot of a nearby motel right off the interstate. They also obtained the video from the parking lot of the motel. The video showed Oscar and the two unknown men enter through the lobby doors of the motel before all three exited about 15 minutes later, got back into Oscar's car, drove back to the rest stop, and Victor was still there waiting in the car. Victor never got out of the car. When they arrived, the two men walked back into the convenience store and Oscar and Victor headed back down on 95 in the direction of home. Fast forward one week, it's Groundhog Day all over again. Agents tracked Oscar and Victor to the same rest stop, except this time they had an observation team in place and were ready to make a move if necessary. When Oscar and Victor pulled up in their separate cars to the rest stop, the same two men were waiting for them at the gas station. Victor waited in the parking lot while Oscar drove the men to the same motel a very short distance away. This time, agents followed them, watching everything unfold in real time. Oscar and his companions arrived to the motel and entered through the lobby doors, just like last time. They were there for about 15 or 20 minutes before all three men returned to Oscar's car. And just like last time, Oscar drove back to the rest stop. However, when they arrived, this time Victor gets out of the car, opens up his trunk, and hands each man two very large black duffel bags. The agents watched the two unknown men then walk to two separate 18-wheeler trucks which were parked in a separate area of the rest stop. Within minutes, each truck started to drive down 95. The agents were ready to act. They had already enlisted the aid of New Jersey State Troopers, asked them to do a traffic stop on the pretense of a traffic violation. You see, in federal cases, when it's ongoing, Agents sometimes enlist the help of local law enforcement because they don't want the suspects to know that they are targets of a larger federal investigation. In the report I read about the traffic stop, the agents claimed that both 18-wheelers committed two separate traffic violations and that provided the probable cause to stop them to issue tickets. I find it very hard to believe that each truck driver broke separate traffic laws, but that's a commentary for another time. The troopers pulled each 18-wheeler over a short distance from one another. Now what happened next changed the course of the entire investigation. The agents had no evidence of any crime being committed. They didn't know what happened at the motel, and they had no prior intelligence about any criminal activity. They only had a hunch. So what do you do when you have a hunch? You ask for permission to search a car. Police cannot search you, your car, your home without probable cause. Probable cause exists when officers have an objectively reasonable belief that a crime has been committed. Here, officers didn't have anything other than suspicion. An exception to probable cause, however, is consent. If you agree to allow police to search you or your property, that's an exception to the probable cause rule. The truck drivers each had valid licenses. The state troopers wrote tickets for each of them, and the truck drivers had the right to leave the scene and be on their way. But for some unknown reason, they each agreed to let police search their truck. Between the two bags, there was more than $2 million in cash. 
Thank you for listening to the Lawyer's Hip Hop Happy Hour. Join me next time for the conclusion of A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. Please don't forget to follow the podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can see bonus videos and content. Until next time, I'll catch you on the B-side.